Hello, lovely listeners. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and for their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. We are. We are. We are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. Tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast where I, Alex, rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you, and more than likely what your great, great, great grandmother twice removed would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week we are back talking true crime, but before we dive into the episode, we need to talk about what I need a distraction from. I don't have any listener distractions this week, however, if you do want to submit your need for a distraction, feel free to shoot me a DM or an email. I can be reached at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Now, my need for distraction this week is the unfortunate news of Roe versus Wade in the States. I know probably a lot of people tuning in have more than likely heard of it. If not, here is the rundown. On June 24th of 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, holding that there is no longer a federal constitution right to an abortion. Going forward, abortion rights will be determined by states unless Congress acts on something alternatively. Now, those that know me or know that I'm from Canada are probably wondering, okay, Alex, that's unfortunate, but why do you care as a Canadian? Well, first and foremost, I have friends in the States. I have people I care about in the States. And not only that, but as a woman, it's just appalling to me to see one country go back so far. And I know this isn't the only country that is doing these kind of things. I know that it is a worldwide problem that sexual health care, you know, physical health care is being stripped away as a human right for women all over the world. However, since the news has come out, because this is obviously going to be released sometime after the news has broken, I've just been filled with rage and so much concern for all those in America who are being affected by this. So I will try and post different resources in today's episode notes, and I'll continue to retweet them on Twitter, post them on Instagram and Facebook. But just know that if you are affected by the Roe versus Wade overturning in the States, I see you, I hear you, and just know that you have a friend in Canada who is willing to help no matter which way possible and just be safe out there everybody because I can imagine that you know things are going to get a little wild over the next couple weeks and as they should. With my need for distraction out of the way I think it's time that we get into this week's distraction aka this week's true crime case. So, I have decided to re-record the very first episode of Weird Distractions, being that of Roque Terrio and the Ant Hill Kids cult. I have... I hope, grown as a podcaster, and because of this, maybe revisiting some of our previous episodes will allow for a more mature, different twist to, you know, previous discussions that we've had. Unfortunately, Christy won't be joining me for these re-released episodes, but have no fear as I will still make it all weird, of course. I also don't have a timeline for when all of these re-released episodes will come out, as it won't be on an ongoing basis. I am, as a reminder, a one-woman show, so things will take time. But all of that aside, due to coarse language, graphic depictions of abuse, discussions of sexual and physical assault, along with other adult themes, listener discretion is advised. If you've been a longtime listener or just know this case, then you know this is a very heavy, dark, and disturbing case. Please consider that there is an extreme trigger warning for basically the entire episode. But with that out of the way, let's get into Roque Terrio and the Ant Hill Kids Cult. <laughs> 
To kick this episode off, I'm going to first talk about Roque. So Roque Theriot was born on May 16th of 1947, making him a Taurus, and he was allegedly born in Saguenay, Quebec, Canada. According to the Times of India website, those who are born a Taurus are described as having strong desire for social and corporate stability. They have a strong desire for extravagance, contentment, and great things, which can lead to intense neediness. This may be present for Roque throughout the story, listeners, you will need to let me know what you think. Regardless, Roque was reportedly raised with his family in Thetford Mines, Quebec. It's been documented that he was raised by a, quote, militant strict Catholic father, and apparently Roque told people that his father was abusive, even going as far as claiming that one time his father pushed him down the stairs as a child. This abuse, according to Roque, would cause his stomach ulcers later in life. And don't worry, we will be circling back to the whole stomach ulcer situation. Roque and his father continued to have somewhat of a rocky relationship, so much so that allegedly his father had kicked him out of the house at age 14. However, not everyone was on Roke's side regarding these allegations of his father being abusive towards him. Neighbors and family members claimed that the abuse Roke was, you know, claiming was not accurate. And Roke's father reportedly stated at one point that he never abused Roke, nor did he ever kick his son out from his home. Further, there were accounts that Roke was considered a manipulative child who was often found lying to blame others and rarely, if ever, took any responsibility for his actions. From what I gathered, Roke often used his reported quote-unquote abuse from his father as the reason behind why he would act out or, you know, do anything he did. And and it's hard to say whether Roke was maybe being honest, maybe he was being abused in some way at home. However, there is no concrete proof or any statements from anybody that knew him or knew his family that this was accurate. So it's really hard to say whether or not these claims are, you know, more than just claims. What was mutually reported by people that knew Roke, though, was that he was a very smart person. And who knows, but maybe he thought he was almost too smart for regular school, as it's been reported that he dropped out at around grade eight and began trying to kind of further his own education by way of the Old Testament Bible. Now, during his studies, Roke would become obsessed with the notion that the world was going to come to an end. Roke allegedly thought that the world was going to end with some epic battle between good versus evil, which as many listeners of the true crime genre or those that are interested in cults are aware of, this is kind of a fairly common idea when it comes to traditional cults. You know, that the world is going to end and there's going to be this epic battle and those that are chosen by some form of God are going to be saved in this battle and won't have to worry about, you know, potentially going to hell. I did want to mention, just in regards to the whole dropping out of school aspect of the situation, that Roke wasn't the only child in his family to drop out at a young age. Allegedly, most of Roke's siblings dropped out around the same time, being grade eight. It's not indicated why they all dropped out. It could have been due to maybe the era or the timeline of when this all was taking place, because as we know, as in a generation now, people were dropping out of school more frequently back then in comparison to now. It also could have been just due to a plethora of different reasons that we won't necessarily do a deep dive into. However, it seemed as though Roke really became entrenched with the Old Testament Bible. I'm not sure if his siblings did, but we know for a fact that he did for sure. Easing into adulthood, Roke has been often described as being approachable, kind, and well-minded. A tall, slender Caucasian man with dark brown hair, Roke was probably considered to many as a nice, normal guy. However, taking off the rose-colored glasses, Roke was actually considerably still manipulative. He kept that manipulative streak from childhood into adulthood, which isn't really shocking. Roke would allegedly write that he believed he could talk his way to any woman and get them to do whatever he wanted. Which, speaking of women, we should probably take the time to introduce his first wife, which he met in 1967 when he was only 20 years old. Her name was Francine, and Francine was reportedly 17 years old when she met Roke and the two got hitched. The pair reportedly got along well at first and even lived near his parents' home for a bit before moving to Montreal in Quebec, Canada. To me, this all kind of sounds like the honeymoon period, to be honest, which we know how those can crash and burn, but we're not quite there yet. During this time, Ro 
Falk reportedly worked as a chimney inspector. However, one resource, being the New York Daily News, noted that he worked for the Montreal Fire Department. Regardless of where it was coming from, an income was definitely needed when he and Francine welcomed their two children, a son named Roque Jr. in 1969 and another son named Francois in 1971. This all sounds beautiful, right? They're living in Montreal. They're a growing family in the 70s, well, late 60s, early 70s, and, you know, life is bliss. Yet, this is actually where we start to begin to see the crash and burn. According to reports, Francine would begin to notice a personality change in her husband come 1971. This change may have been due to the fact that Roque reportedly was experiencing ulcers in his stomach, which would need to be removed. I mean, it is fair and common to assume that physical pain could really impact someone's personality, so no wonder Francine noticed a change in Roque. Now that I've kind of mentioned ulcers a bit, I just kind of want to give a quick moment to kind of explain what an ulcer is for those that don't know, because to be honest, as much as I've heard of them in my life, I didn't really know what they were in particular. So according to the Mayo Clinic website, a stomach ulcer or peptic ulcers are open sores that develop on the inside lining of your stomach and the upper portion of your small intestine. The most common symptom of peptic ulcer is stomach pain. Now, I don't need to be a doctor to tell you that that sounds really unpleasant and it sounds extremely painful. So doctors reportedly removed a large portion of Roque's stomach, which didn't actually leave a positive aftermath for Mr. Roque Terrio, because Roque was then later diagnosed with dumping syndrome. Dumping syndrome, and a direct quote from the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Disease, quote, is a group of symptoms such as diarrhea, nausea, and feeling lightheaded or tired after a meal that are caused by rapid gastric emptying. Rapid gastric emptying is a condition in which food moves too quickly from the stomach to your duodenum. Because of this, Roque had to abide by a very strict diet and medication. As hinted, his physical pain began weighing heavily on his mental well-being, which was probably more than likely what Francine was noticing. Reports claimed that Roque became less social and spent a lot of time reading medical articles as if he was studying for some kind of test in medical school. During this time, Roque reportedly moved back to his hometown and began telling people that his stomach was made out of plastic and that he was going to die soon. Which, you know, those are very alarming statements. Because of these statements, people connecting with Roque were picking up that something was a bit off with Roke. For example, those who had talked to Roke noticed a change in how he would supposedly talk to and about Francine. For example, before the surgery, he was very controlling in how Francine dressed, but after the surgery, he encouraged her to allegedly wear short skirts and was more open in talking about sex in front of other people, which apparently prior to, that was not his style. He was very, I don't want to say prudish, but he was very closed off. Let's put it that way. So needless to say, the personality changes that Francine was seeing at home were now becoming more apparent to those that were seeing him outside of the home. To make things even more weird, during the 1970s, after his surgeries, Roque tried to begin dabbling in politics. However, it did not last long, as other council members couldn't stand Roque's outbursts and lack of planning. This may be due to Roque supposedly drinking more heavily and apparently also not taking his medications. The supposed reason behind Roque no longer taking his medications is that he allegedly felt like it was affecting his sex life and basically he began self-medicating with alcohol in order to ease his stomach pains. Clearly, he didn't really understand that alcohol can also affect your sex life, but hey, hindsight is 2020. Not long after all of this transpired, Francine and Roque reportedly get divorced, which I'm sure isn't that much of a shocker given the fact that he's not taking his medications, he's clearly experiencing a personality change due to all of these physical ailments. And, you know, it's probably more than likely hard for somebody in a relationship to deal with all of this on top of juggling raising two kids. At this point, I don't really know how involved Roke is when it comes to raising his two sons with Francine. However, we will be discussing how he, uh, goes about raising children later on. And that 
kind of makes me think that uh, he wasn't that involved. But he wasn't on the market for long as he moved on to a new partner by the name of Giselle. Reports claim that the two shacked up in 1976 and the relationship started fairly well. Once again, we're back in the honeymoon stage, but it is noted that Giselle reportedly was quick to notice Roque's alcoholism. And for those wondering how Roque and Giselle met, according to Murderpedia, Roque actually supposedly, allegedly, had an affair with Giselle while still married to Francine. And trust me when I say this man's relationships just get messier and messier as we continue on with this case. By 1976, it's been documented that Roque became involved with the Catholic Church. He seemed to continue on with this deep dive into religion. And the more that Roque supposedly learned, the more that his own ego began growing, so much so that he felt like he knew more than the Catholic Church, which is a bold statement for a man who couldn't even make it in politics. Roque at some point leaves the practice of Catholicism and decides to become a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Based on what I gathered from Britannica, those a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church may believe in the Second Coming, which is when supposedly Christ will separate the saints from the wicked and inaugurate those a part of the church into heaven. And what I can assume the rest of those that aren't a part of the church will burn in hell or whatever kind of awful place that those not a part of the church go to because once again, they're not part of the group. So, you know, you snooze, you lose kind of mentality, I'm assuming. Who knows? Maybe I'm being an assumption asshole over here, but that's just kind of what I gathered in my research. Regardless, is this ring a bell for anyone? Is this is this pattern ring a bell for anyone? Yes, yeah, of course, because it makes sense to me that Roke would jump on this bandwagon. From as a child, this this man thought that this second coming was happening. So he gets behind this bandwagon and he ends up getting baptized by the church. And after he was baptized, Roke reportedly began eating a healthy vegetarian diet, stopped smoking and drinking. He was kind of back on this more healthier quote unquote lifestyle. And according to Murderpedia, Rogue even told Giselle that he was considering becoming a priest. So yeah, needless to say, he was really into this. Basically, it seemed like being connected to this church was having a very positive outcome for his mental well-being. Rogue convinced his partner, Giselle, to convert to the church as well, supposedly, and he begins selling Seventh-day Adventist pamphlets and apparently was really good at this because, you know, he had charisma and he he was very easy to talk to. And he was being noticed by the members of the church. You know, they were praising him. They were happy that he was selling the pamphlets. And ultimately, they were really impressed with what he was bringing to the church. And, you know, I'm sure at one point, Roke was eating this up. He was probably basking in all of the praise and compliments he was getting. But by 1977, Roke seemed to have become tired of the praise. And his old ways of needing power and control were weaving their way back in. See, Roke liked being in control, and I think that's maybe why he leaned so heavily into religion and into, you know, exploring his own ways of treating his kind of physical situation, because he probably felt as if he didn't have control. So doing things on his own terms meant that he could have a say in the outcome. He could have a say in what was going on. And so even though he's doing really, really well with the seven-day Adventist church and, you know, trying to kind of get his diet and medical treatment back into order, he's probably still itching to be kind of above a group of people, right? I mean, he tried politics for crying out loud. That's kind of one <laughs> position someone can be in where they're trying to be in control of something or leading something. I also just wonder too, if as a person, Roke gets very bored easily. So if he's not constantly stimulated by something exciting or just in general, if he's not constantly doing something and advancing his 
himself more and more, he just gets bored. And when he gets bored, that's kind of where these almost impulsive ideas or actions kind of stem from, right? I mean, you know, he's doing well with the church, he's taking care of himself, but at some point it's not enough. So jumping to the summer of 1977, Roque decided to make his move in terms of getting this power and control. He reportedly was able to convince a group of young adults to quit their jobs, leave their home, and join his religious movement, which this movement was apparently under the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Roque would express to this group that the second coming was going to happen any day and that the end of times was near. How did he know this? Well, apparently Roque told folks that he had a direct connection to God and God was calling out saying, hey Roque, uh, don't know if you know this already, but the end of times is coming. So you should really find a group of people that want to be saved and yeah, TTYL. Bye. Now, for those listening that might be wondering, who was Roke trying to recruit in this new religious movement? Like, who was he seeking out in this supposed group? Roke would supposedly seek out those deemed rebellious or individuals looking to find maybe a new purpose for life to join his group. He also found interest in those with a medical background due to his previous health concerns and his obsession with the medical field and learning more about how the human body works. Part of me thinks he took this interest as a way to converse with, you know, these people with medical backgrounds about his own physical concerns, or maybe to discuss ways to treat them outside of the previous medical recommendations given to him. Now, Roke's girlfriend, Giselle, was beginning to grow concerned regarding her new booze friend group. Some reports claim that she was worried that these new female quote-unquote friends or group members were going to fall in love with Roke. And to maybe kind of keep a happy front, Roke and Giselle married on January 8th of 1978. However, the relationship didn't seem to be as serious for Roke as it was for Giselle, even though they were now married. For example, Giselle's worries grew even more so about, you know, the new female members of Roke's group after the wedding as she reportedly became pregnant. So now she's pregnant, she's worried that Roke is going to leave her for one of these new female members. Even though she was having his child, Roke supposedly didn't appear interested in the relationship with Giselle or the baby. On one reported occasion, Giselle claimed to threaten Roke that if he didn't step up his game in the relationship, aka, you know, putting an effort into it, she was going to leave him. Now, most people may respond by tearfully agreeing to get their shit together, to put more effort into the relationship, and, you know, do better. But Roke responded in a very different way. He allegedly punched Giselle in the face and told her to not leave the room for two days. Tied to him legally and now carrying their child, Giselle stayed in probable hopes that things would get better even after this incident. Now, shifting back to the cult, I mean, to the group, by 1977, Roke seemed to develop more of a goal behind gathering these young folks in this group. Basically, he gathered this group so that these folks could listen to his motivational speeches and live together in a place formed around unity, equality, and free of sin. He would inform these people in kind of like a sales pitch that he was responsible for organizing these detoxification sessions across the province of Quebec. Perhaps he did this in some kind of way to try to coax people to join this group so that maybe they would have a job with him or just in general to kind of boast that he was this maybe bigger person than what he was in society. These sessions were allegedly based on healthy eating, positive psychology, and group therapy. In summary, Roke was trying to sell people to join his group so that he could give daily TED Talks and have folks follow what he said as borderline gospel. But where would he do this, you might ask? Like, where would he have these people come and listen to him give these, quote, motivational speeches? Well, in none other than he and Giselle's apartment. Group members would reportedly attend the apartment and eventually move in, some sleeping on the floor, the couch, or wherever they really could to kind of get somewhat comfortable. I can imagine Giselle was more 
than likely not so thrilled with this, especially given her worries, plus with how bizarre and absent Roke was being towards her. Things seemingly appeared okay at first, but like most cults, there's a hindrance of horror hiding behind its corners. In the beginning, Roke and his group reportedly would organize these free banquets for the underprivileged within the community in hopes that they would attend his healthy living clinic or one of his detoxification sessions. In speaking about this quote-unquote clinic thing going on here, in a direct quote from Murderpedia, quote, the Healthy Living Clinic was an alternative medicine venue where you could get organic foods and holistic literature to help you cure any ailment. Cash up front, of course. Roke insisted they, being his group members, all wear a uniform, an ankle-length pullover tunic, green for women and beige for men, with Roke wearing a dark brown robe of a similar cut, end quote. During the time of the Healthy Living Clinic and when they were offering banquets, the group supposedly met a local nine-year-old girl named Geraldine who was struggling with leukemia. Wanting to aid Geraldine, Roke and the group decided to offer this young girl with some healthcare, some alternative healthcare, let's put it that way. And so Roke actually allegedly convinced this girl and her family that she should leave the hospital. And furthermore, that Roke could treat her with kind of a, a different medicine, so to speak, which supposedly this medicine consisted of grape juice and organic food. Now, before anyone gets judgmental on the situation, in particular regarding Geraldine and her family, we need to consider that perhaps Geraldine and her family were desperate for her to get better. Maybe they had already tried a bunch of different methods and nothing was working. So, you know, desperate times can lead to desperate measures and actions that may not make sense to those not involved in the situation. So Geraldine begins Roke's treatment plan, and maybe to no surprise, she eventually passes away due to leukemia. Turns out out this medication didn't really help the situation. Um, I don't necessarily know if it made it worse. Regardless, unfortunately, Geraldine passes away. Now, Roke being what I would consider a weird-ass dude, reportedly told his members that he kissed Geraldine before giving her to God, and that supposedly after Roke kissed her, she then passed away. Unfortunately, this isn't the worst he does to girls and women and people in general, but we will get to that later on. Accounts claim that police did not press any charge which is funky to me, but I assume that maybe it was because Roke didn't directly harm Geraldine. I mean, he didn't physically hurt her or kill her, murder her, however which way you want to flip it. He, in my mind, he did misguide her potentially, but I don't necessarily know if police had enough evidence to press charges for that. Although Roke wasn't prosecuted by the law, he would be prosecuted by the church. So accounts come out of this situation with Geraldine, and needless to say, the Seventh-day Adventist church is not happy. Because even though Roke is kind of doing his own thing, he's still associated with the church, and a lot of people in the community knew he was associated with the church because, once again, he was selling pamphlets for the church. According to accounts, Roke and the quote-unquote free care that he was offered by him and his group members was becoming more and more of a conflict with members of the Seventh-day Adventist church, which reportedly led to multiple probable tense discussions with the church and eventually Roke and his group were asked to leave. Talk about drama. Even though this may sound like a loss for the group, Roke may have looked at it as a win. Basically, the members and Roke were free to continue to do their own thing, including offering Roke's detoxification services, his healthy living clinic, and all of that fun stuff in various regions of Quebec, which reportedly kind of ramped up in the summer of 1978. So basically now the group is on the move, and this was probably kind of ideal given a couple of different reasons. For one, like most of us nowadays, the Healthy Living Clinic was holding a lot of debt. Secondly, a lot of people outside of the group were kind of keeping their eyes and their tabs open regarding Roke and his followers. A lot of people were asking, you know, what their purpose really was and were they actually offering these 
quote unquote, health services to people with good intentions. So being able to move freely from one place to another was kind of ideal for Roke and the group. However, after a few months of touring, there seemed to be a drop with participant attendance, which led the members to slowly withdraw out of the group during the tours. Basically, the less people came, the less desire or maybe the less belief that the group members had. So they thought, okay, you know what? This really isn't my cup of tea anymore. I'm gonna bounce and bounce they did. Roker probably perceived this drop in attendance in response to how the public in general was viewing and responding to the group. Essentially in his eyes, the public, including friends and family of current members, weren't head over heels for Roke and the gang, which meant that Roke wasn't gaining new members. This kind of makes me wonder if at this point, Roke is getting a little bit paranoid because, you know, he is essentially not getting the same attention or, I don't know, maybe praise, maybe love, affection, whatever you want to call it, from these members or from the community. So now he is speculating that, oh, it's not me that is the problem, it's somebody else. Once again, not claiming that responsibility. And the paranoia is coming in that perhaps the family and friends of the group members are being told all these different things by the current members. This is kind of proven when Roke all of a sudden decides that anyone remaining in the group, aka the cult, let's be real here, needs to cut off all contact with family and friends. Referring to the Bible, apparently Roke justified this demand by stating, keep evil at arm's length. Roke also asked all the members of the group to wear identical clothes, robes to be specific, because we love a group coordinated outfit. So I don't know if the tunics got kind of tossed, but now they're all wearing the same thing. Whilst cutting off loved ones and becoming a bland blob of humans, Roke also allegedly required members to give up their possessions. You have a favorite plant? Not anymore. Nike shoes? Kiss them goodbye. This is another huge move in many cults, being that of isolation and depersonalization. A cult thrives on little or no outside contact and personality breakdown, which Roke was using these leadership moves, these quote unquote leadership moves, in order to keep those remaining members close. Those remaining members followed behind Roke as he continued to fill their minds that if they did, they would be safe from the end of days, which Roke begun convincing the members that the end was coming in February of 1979. To prep for this, it has been documented that Roke moved his crew to the Gaspe Peninsula, Mount Albert area of Quebec. For geographical reference, Gaspe Peninsula is almost nine hours east of Montreal. Roque allegedly promised his followers that they would be saved if they resided at the Gaspe Peninsula, which they named it the Internal Mountain. Roque and the group made the move and quickly got to work making their own community in the Gaspe Peninsula. Well, I should rephrase that. Everyone began working except for the great leader, Roque, of course. It was documented that while watching the members slave over construction, Roke apparently referred to everyone as ants working on an anthill. And with that, the anthill kids group, well, cult was born. These kids, which was actually a mixture of kids and adults, were described as constantly working hard. There were claims that Roke kept the group members continuously working and therefore kept the members constantly tired. Slowly but surely, he was breaking them down both physically and mentally. Now with every group, there usually comes nicknames for its members. As a group, they were the Ant Hill Kids, but individually, Roke reportedly began giving members different Bible-based names. He decided to give himself a nickname in which he started to go by Moses to his members. I don't know how you go from Roke to Moses, but honestly, the dude hasn't been making much sense up to this point. So I'm not really surprised that, you know, him giving himself the nickname Moses doesn't make that much sense to me. Now, remember when I said there was a hindrance of horror around the corner when it comes to cults? Well, here comes the horror, the weirdness, and the absolute travesty of Roque Terrio's doings. During the group's time in Gaspe Peninsula, Roke began having members tell their secrets to him, which he would later use against members as either a form of embarrassment or leverage to get what he wanted, aka blackmail. Oh, and remember Giselle? Yeah, around this time, Roke reportedly became unfaithful to Giselle by sleeping with other female members. So her worries were more than valid because, well, look what happened. If this isn't shitty enough, Roke turned his isolation tactics up even more by supposedly 
convincing members that the, quote, outside world, including their friends and family, were evil, often referring to them as the world of the dead. This is all leading up to the end of the world, by the way, which I'm sure between blaming his dad for his alleged abuse, God telling him what to do, and whatever other reason he had, Rogue probably justified his actions by slapping the world as ending on it. But in an epic plot twist, February of 1979 came and went, in which it became more evident that the end of the world, aka the end of times, was not happening when Rogue said it was going to happen, which, talk about awkward. Reports claim that the group began to question whether Roke was just making shit up. But of course, Roke came back with a great excuse. According to him, apparently, quote, the Earth world and God's world were not parallel, so actually there's a miscommunication and a miscalculation of when the world is actually going to come to an end. That's not actually probably what he said or how he actually said it, but that's my rendition of how it was more than likely stated. But to elaborate further, apparently, according to Roke, because because Earth and God's planet were not aligned, there was this ultimate miscalculation and therefore the days were actually messed up. Which this kind of confuses me because isn't Earth God's planet in some religions? Like, I, that that's what I presume, but I mean, I guess in this scenario, there's a separate place. Look, I don't know, but needless to say, Roke had this great excuse of basically him and God had a miscommunication and therefore February of 1979 wasn't actually when end of times was happening. Now, many leaders may take this blow and try to limit how many of their followers could question them. Instead, Roke decided it was a smart plan to keep expanding the group. And he did this by marrying approximately nine women. And I believe this is nine plus Giselle. So he's still married to Giselle as far as my understanding, but then he goes on and marries nine other women within the group. And it doesn't really stop there. He would go on to have an additional 20 children from these marriages. At this point, he has a total of 23 children roaming the earth, two from his first wife, one from Giselle, and well, you know, 20 from the others. By 1984, Roque thought it would be good to bring the Ant Hill kids to Ontario from Quebec. Specifically, the group re relocated to a place called Burnt River, which is approximately two hours-ish north of Toronto. Things started to move from Roke being this motivational wannabe TED Talk speaker filled with healthy ideas to more of a mess of a human being. Roke's alcoholism was reportedly increasing and so was his desire to control everyone in the clan. Roke's control even went as far as controlling whether members spoke to one another, which he completely eliminated. Basically, he didn't want anyone talking without his permission. Roke also reportedly didn't want members to engage in sex with one another because basically if he wasn't in involved, it wasn't going to happen. Now, to make sure his members were following his rules, Roke allegedly would spy on the members. So he would spy on his own members of his group, and basically he would later on call them out if they went against any of his rules. But of course, he never admitted to spying on any of them, he said that God told him what his members were doing and therefore God was his snitch and Roke's hands were technically clean of seeing anything and he was just listening to God. Throughout all of this, people were trying to leave for various valid reasons. Members that did try and leave but were unsuccessful were reportedly severely punished through methods such as being hit with a belt or hammer, being pooped on, which I'm not joking, people were being pooped on, or these people would have body hairs plucked out one by one as a weird sick form of punishment. And unfortunately, torture and trauma wasn't just to those who tried to leave. Supposedly, members who were also not selling enough baked goods, which was the Ant Hill kids' main source of income, were also punished. Prior to selling baked goods, there are accounts that the group would get by via shoplifting. But back to the punishments, which sadly got worse over time. So much so that there was a point where members were made to break their own legs with sledgehammers, sit on lit stoves, shoot other members in the shoulders, or made to eat dead mice or poop. And this trauma and torture wasn't limited to just the adults. Reports claim that the children of the cult also experienced abuse, both physical, sexual, and emotional. There have 
Robin claims that Roke would make the children watch the adults engage in orgies and participate as well, exploiting them every single time. Roke also allegedly would force all members, and I mean all members, to sexually abuse each other along with animals. As mentioned earlier, Roke married more than just Giselle as the cult began growing. One of Roke's wives, Eliezer Lavelli, may have clued in regarding how bad things were becoming with the group. I say this because there is one documented instance where Eliezer reportedly left one of her and Roke's newborns outside overnight. This took place reportedly during the winter time, and there have been claims that she did this so that it could pass without having to endure its dark future within the Ant Hill Kids cult. Needless to say, things were getting desperate inside the cult. Survival was probably all most were trying to accomplish on the daily, especially as Roke began to decline mentally. During this projected decline, Roke tried to apparently bring back the religion part of the cult through ridding his members of their sins through what he called purifying. Now, when I think of something that's purifying, I think of a face mask or a cleanser, maybe an explosion. However, Roke and I have very different ideologies when it comes to purifying. His method was to have his cult members strip down naked and whip them as a way to purify their sins. And unfortunately, folks in the cult endured this, probably on a regular basis. Around this time, Roke also became convinced that due to his self-described godlike abilities and his previous self-read knowledge from medical articles, he was able to take care of his sick members on his own. Now, I will mention again, Roke does not have a medical degree. He should not be acting like he has a medical degree, but alas, he does act like he has a medical degree. He does this by way of doing botched surgeries and physical experiments on the reported sick members of the cult. For example, he would begin injecting 94% ethanol solution into members' stomachs or just randomly begin performing circumcisions on both children and adults. It's also been documented that Roke even castrated one of the males in the group. Just, you know, because he could. Luckily, one of the cult members left the group successfully with their children, and they were able to reach out to authorities to report what was going on in the Ant Hill Kids cult. This report led to a visit by social workers in 1985, where 13 children were removed, but for some weird reason, Roke was not prosecuted at this time for any of the abuse. Now, only social workers went into the cult during the visit, and what I'm about to say next may shock folks. Even though it was revealed later by authorities, that they had their own queries around the cult, because the group was considerably listed as a church or, you know, part of this religious group, the authorities weren't able to investigate further. Basically, they were kind of keeping politics out of religion, which is how it should be. And you can't see my eyes, but I'm giving you the eyes. Anyways, this is also why the social workers went in as they're not part of the law and, you know, obviously there were concerns over the children. Roke did not take the social worker visit lightly and accounts claim that he actually snapped at the social workers before claiming to his followers that Doomsday had finally arrived. I think this visit by social workers only pushed Roke's mental well-being and cognitive function down further, which we're going to get into why in a little bit, but I should say say, I feel like his mental and cognitive well-being have just been nosediving since the beginning. I do want to circle back a little bit to the social worker visit and maybe why authorities didn't necessarily jump on Roke and the cult right away, per se. I mean, I'm sure they were keeping tabs, but they probably didn't want to jump right away. And in my mind, I'm wondering if that's because Roke was so good at talking his way out of anything. For example, and... This should be noted that Roke even convinced a court-appointed psychologist that he was a victim of a prejudiced society because he was French-speaking Canadian, and during that time, there was a lot of tension between the French-speaking and English-speaking Canadians, and furthermore, that it wasn't the children or the members that were the victims, but rather he was the victim. And he didn't abuse the children. Now, I wanted to bring this up because basically, once again, it shows that he wipes his hands clean of every 
problem he creates. He takes no responsibility for anything. And actually, weirdly enough, he actually convinces this court-appointed psychologist, supposedly, to believe him. And which I know many listening are probably thinking, what in the actual fuck? What is this weird shit you're saying? How did he convince a court-appointed psychologist that he is not in the wrong? And, you know, this is because he was so manipulative and he was so charismatic and convincing. And unfortunately, he would go on to convince other psychologists and other people during this whole span of, well, the whole span of his life, let's be real, that he was never in the wrong. He never could do no wrong. He was the victim in all of this. And unfortunately, the master manipulator was only up to more traumatic things that we unfortunately do need to discuss. So I apologize for maybe being a little bit all over the place, but I did want to bring up the the court-appointed psychologist right now, just in the sense of what we're about to discuss, really shows the depth of his manipulation in terms of what he can convince people he didn't do and what he can convince people to do for him. At this point in the story, I have to rewarn anyone listening that if you thought, you know, everything I've mentioned previous was horrific, It's about to get a lot worse as we discuss further sexual and physical abuse to minors and adults, and there will be graphic details. So trigger warning, just a heads up, it's about to get pretty graphic. If you're not feeling like you're in the headspace to listen, I totally understand, but this is your warning. By 1989, members of the Ant Hill kids were probably becoming sick and exhausted due to their way of life. One of those members was Solange Boylard. And my sincere apologies if I'm mispronouncing this name. I mean, no ill will in doing this. Hopefully I'm saying it right, but if not, let me know. Solange apparently was one of the original members, and on one occasion, she reportedly noted that she was struggling with an upset stomach. Wannabe doctor, Roke, had her lay naked on a table to investigate further, more than likely claiming that he could make the stomach pains go away. He proceeded to punch her in the stomach, repeatedly, as a way to, quote, work out her liver. I should add that she has no anesthesia during this alleged treatment. So she is is literally feeling every punch come at her. Roke then forced a plastic tube up her rectum in a way to perform a sick form of an enema with molasses and olive oil. He then proceeded to cut open her abdomen and rip part of her intestines out. Roke then made another member, Gabrielle, attempt to stitch Solange up using a needle and thread whilst having another member shove a tube down her throat and instructed this member to blow in this tube. To no surprise to Probably anyone after all of that physical torture, Solange died the next morning from the damage inflicted by the procedures. Now, one must wonder, how does Roke respond to Solange's death? Well, Roke decided to marry the deceased Solange not long after, before she was reportedly buried. But Roke then remembered that he has the power of resurrection and on some real bullshit thought if he would be able to drill a hole into Solange's skull and have other male members ejaculate into the hole of the skull, Solange might come back to life. I'm not a doctor, but I don't think that's how it works. Regardless, Solange's body was dug up and previously mentioned horrendous acts were done. When Solange did not come back to life, she was buried again, not far from the Ant Hill kids' site. Further, there are claims that Roke kept some of Solange's bones to reportedly make a necklace. Gabrielle, who was one of many to witness this travesty done to Solange, finally had her breaking point, or maybe she actually had one beforehand and this was another breaking point. Regardless, enough was enough. Shining a light on Gabrielle and her experiences, she was also reportedly abused by Roke on a regular basis. There have been accounts claiming that Gabrielle suffered welding torch burns to her genitals, a hydrodermic needle breaking off in her back, and even had eight of her teeth being forcibly removed. Gabrielle was a former nurse before joining the cult, therefore someone Roke wanted to keep by for her medical background. But as mentioned, she was done with this nonsense since in 1989 and was on her way to make her second break from the cult. See, she had reportedly attempted to escape from the Ant Hill kids sometime in the 1980s. Gabrielle returned after staying at a local woman's shelter after being convinced by another member to come back. When she came back though, Roke responded to her attempting to leave by removing one of her fingers with wire cutters, then pinned her hand to a wooden table with a hunting knife. In a final act of absolute torture and trauma, he then proceeded 
needed to use a chainsaw to amputate her arm. With all of this in her mind and witnessing what was going on around her, Gabrielle braved leaving the Ant Hill kids again in 1989, which she went to the authorities and reported what was happening with the cult. This led to Roke being arrested and finally the breakdown of the Ant Hill kids cult, aka Roke's reign of terror and trauma. Now, I think because Gabrielle went to officials and reported the abuse she had suffered at the hands of Roke, they were able to arrest Roke. They probably weren't able to earlier because the members were more than likely forbidden to speak to authorities, plus the whole politics and religion aspect of things. There, there probably was a lot of different barriers going on, but now finally those barriers were broken down. Now, as mentioned earlier, Roke supposedly was appointed a couple of court-appointed psychologists, which inevitably believed him, believed that he was this victim and supposedly believed what he had to say. However, just because these psychologists supposedly believed Roke, it wouldn't stop justice from actually working out in in the favor of the victims, to some degree. Roke would be found guilty for assault and for the amputation of Gabrielle's arm, in which he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Now, people listening in for the first time and maybe haven't heard of this case before are probably thinking, okay, that's great. He's in prison. Goodbye. See you later. Unfortunately, that's that's not the end of the story. So during his imprisonment, Roke would still allegedly father another four children with remaining female members members during conjugal visits because apparently this man gets conjugal visits, but yet there are people in prison for marijuana charges. Like really? This man tortured people, children. He tortured children and people. And yet he gets conjugal visits and there are people still in prison in 2022 over marijuana related charges. It just blows my mind how sometimes the justice system, how it works and how it just doesn't work and how it basically makes no sense. But regardless, I think stepping back from that statement, I want to point out the fact that there are still people who are still following Roke and still wanting to participate with Roke, even though he has been convicted of, you know, all these heinous things. Well, technically he's only been convicted for Gabrielle, but we'll get to that. So supposedly two of the former Ant Hill Kids cult members had tried to open up a store after Roke was arrested and sentenced to jail. And, you know, they had the store open for a little bit. However, they actually had to close the store eventually because people in the community found out that they were part of this cult and that they were associated with Roke. Gabrielle's report of the Ant Hill kids and Roke opened up further investigations, which then Bussin opened the wider abuses at the communes and Solange's murder. This meant more charges to be pressed for Roke. Roke pled guilty to second degree murder for Solange in 1993, four years after her tragic death. For this, he was sentenced for life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Roke would be transferred to Dorchester Penitentiary, which is located in New Brunswick and is a medium security prison in Dorchester from Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario sometime within 2000. During his imprisonment, Roke reportedly received multiple death threats from other inmates and often needed to be on protective watches for fear of his safety. By 2002, Roke would try to apply for parole in probable hopes to live a life outside of jail. However, he was rejected as he was considered too high risk to reoffend, and apparently he just never applied again. However, he would make headlines again come 2009. This is because Roke reportedly tried to sell his artwork on a US-based website called murderauction.com, which reportedly claims itself to be a true crime auction house. According to reports, the website was willing to sell some of Roke's drawings and poetry. This was put to an immediate stop as the Canadian government was concerned that Roke would benefit from financial gain, which is a no-no. So needless to say, this was put to a stop. Everything was kind of quiet until... 2011. So in February 2011, Roke was found dead near his jail cell after another inmate, a man named Matthew Gerard McDonald from Newfoundland, reportedly stabbed Roke in the neck with a shiv. Matthew was already in prison for life after being found guilty of murder, which I may still cover sometime in the future, and apparently did to Roke what he did to many before. He took Roke's light of life. It was reported that Matthew told prison guards once approached, quote, that piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I've sliced him up, end quote. Roke was 63 years old when he died, and I bet he didn't predict his own doomsday coming. So to kind of summarize this episode, in re-recording this episode, I reminded it as to why 
Christy and I picked this case to cover for our first episode. I think it was because I was so shocked that this travesty, these horrible crimes and traumas were caused by a man who I had never heard of until I got into podcasts. Specifically, I heard this case from Spencer Henry's Cult Leader podcast, and I would definitely recommend checking out that show if you want to hear more about cults and weird things, because Spencer is a really good host and a really good storyteller. But yeah, I heard this story first from that show and I just remember being so shocked and just in awe of how this happened in Canada, literally the country I am from, born and raised. And I never heard of this until I tuned into that episode. Being so shocked, I wanted to cover it as our first episode because I just wanted to discuss it with hopes that maybe there were other people who were in my position and, you know, could educate them about this travesty that really happened. I know often I like to kind of use the perspective that when we talk about cold cases, you know, we're kind of breathing life back into them. And the more we talk about them, the more we become educated about them and the more we can educate others about them. And I think that kind of applies to this case because to be honest, I think this case needs to be talked about more in the sense of not re-traumatizing the victims, obviously, but taking in those points of, okay, you know, if you are somebody young and impressionable, these are people that you should avoid. Like Rogue Terrio is someone that you need to avoid. I mean, obviously not him specifically because he's dead, but people like him, people that are wanting to manipulate and use you. And I think that's also kind of why I really want to discuss this case was not just to talk about something, you know, crazy and wild, but also just to try and find those takeaways or those educational pieces. I mean, I think when it comes to talking about true crime cases, there are aspects of a case that we can kind of pull out of in terms of, okay, you know what, I'm going to take this piece and I'm going to carry it with me. And who knows, maybe it's something that I can use in my everyday life, whether it's avoiding a certain type of person or, you know, just being knowledgeable of any kind of themes that kind of come out of that case itself. And it still shocks me that he was from Canada and flew right under my radar for so long in terms of, you know, kind of quote, true crime cases that are really well known in Canada. As assumed upon many, Roque has been listed as one of Canada's most notorious serial killers, along with others such as Paul Bernardo, Robert Picton, and Clifford Olson. I also acknowledge that yes, he is one of the more notorious ones, and yet I did not know about him. But to be honest, I feel like that's also kind of the unsung gift of podcasts. You learn so much more when you're tuning into a show or or just absorbing that information than maybe you would have ever. But back to the previously mentioned men from Canada. These men, among many out there, probably don't have any understanding of the stain that they have left behind in the forms of trauma and despair. Focusing on the victims of this case, it's been documented that former Ant Hill Kid members, such as Gabrielle, were able to seek out therapy post leaving the cult. I also truly hope that in some way, shape, or form, they were also given alternative resources in order to heal from everything that they experienced. Gabrielle even took her own experiences and documented for others to learn more about what happened and to further share the horrors they experienced under Rogue's reign. For those wondering, Gabrielle's memoir is called The Alliance of the Sheep. I did find it on Amazon, but it seems to be in French. I don't know if there's an English version out there, but I will link it in today's episode notes along with the resources. I want to hear from listeners if they like me re-recording earlier episodes. Feel free to shoot me a DM or email me directly. Once again, not sure how frequently I'm going to do this. I do want to kind of slowly inch my way and re-record some of Christy and I's earlier episodes just because I know the audio quality is a little bit... Uh questionable. <laughs> but realistically, also, I just want to kind of put a new twist on it, maybe look for some more resources and ultimately just continue to provide the distractions that you all want. So let me know. Let me know your thoughts of today's episode. And in general, feel free to say hi. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, 
Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month, you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Sissy, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis, but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me A Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some longtime listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too close to home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Have you been wanting to read more, but don't seem to have the time? Well, with Audible, you can read your books without having to find the extra time in your busy schedule. Stuck in traffic on your way home from work? Why not marathon the Harry Potter books? In the gym and want to learn about the First Lady? Well, you can listen to Becoming Michelle Obama while doing Leg Day. And if you go to audibletrial.com cultivate, you get a month free of Audible. That includes one credit that you can trade in for any audiobook of your choice, access to thousands of audiobooks free to listen to with your account, and best of all, you have access to all of your favorite podcasts in the app as well. So be sure to go to my link, audibletrial.com slash cultivate, that's C-U-L-T-I-V, the number eight, to sign up for a free month of Audible and start reading today. Thank you, Audible, for supporting the show.